Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Scripture Uncovered. Hey, we left off on Friday with St. Stephen being dragged out of the Sanhedrin and stoned to death. And we met for the very first time a young man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And it was Saul, a student of Gamaliel, a brilliant young man, who oversaw the stoning of St. Stephen. And then we learned that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Oh, no one ever hated Christ more than Saul of Tarsus. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and he put them in prison. So the great persecution in Jerusalem begins. Now, the scene cuts in chapter 8, verse 4 of Acts. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Those who were scattered went north and south from Jerusalem, some down to the coast and got on board ship and sailed off to the western portion of the Roman Empire. So think of the strategy there. With the persecution of the church and the stoning of Stephen, it was like dropping a rock in a lake of water, and the ripples went out all over the Roman Empire. Now those who traveled north would go down from Jerusalem to the coast and follow the Via Maris all the way up to Damascus. And we read now, those scattered preached wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. Philip, one of the deacons. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, with all this happening, others sat up and took notice. We're going to meet one of them right now. For some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in that very city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the Great Power. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now Simon himself believed and he was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Now, Simon was a sorcerer, if you will, one who could perform seemingly magical healings and, and, and events. And Simon watched Philip, and he thought, hmm, there's money to be made in this. So when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Samaria. Samaria is in the central mountain range, and Samaria, the city of Samaria, 
was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, after Solomon's death, his knuckleheaded son Rehoboam came to the throne and all the tribes came together to give their support. But Rehoboam wanted concessions. The people wanted concessions too. Solomon had a great, enormous amount of wealth. And how did he get it? From taxing his own people and from conscripted labor for all of his building projects. People hated that. They hated corvée, the, the conscripted labor, and they hated the high taxes. So, represented by Jeroboam, Rehoboam said, I need to think about this. Because Jeroboam had said, look, we'll support you if you lower the taxes and end conscripted labor. Rehoboam said, well, let me think about it for three days. So they went away three days later. He said, no, it's not going to happen, which triggers a civil war in 930 BC, a civil war that drags on for over 80 years. The Northern Kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes, make up the Northern Kingdom with their capital at the city of Samaria. The Southern Kingdom, Judah, with its capital at Jerusalem and the temple. They split in 930 BC. In 721 BC, the Assyrian Empire swept down from the north and obliterated the entire northern kingdom and took people captive into Assyria. In 586, the Babylonian Empire took Jerusalem and Judah. Well, there it was. All those years, we read in the New Testament, we read about the Good Samaritan. That's an oxymoron to a Jew. There's no such thing as a Good Samaritan. They're all bad. Now in Samaria, traditional enemies for hundreds of years with the Southern Kingdom, now people are being baptized. And when the apostles saw that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they said, we better go check this out. So they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So then Peter and John placed their hands on them and by golly, they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, that's when he saw his opportunity. He offered them money. And he said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This is a powerful thing, and I want this gift. Why did he want it? Well, he can make a pretty penny from it. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. You're a con man. 
We know what you're trying to do. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord, and perhaps he'll forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness, and you are captive to sin. And then Simon answered, Oh, pray to the Lord for me, so nothing you said might happen. And when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan cities along the way. So the Samaritans are coming into the fold, and Simon the sorcerer got his. Huh, Simon the sorcerer tried to buy this gift of giving the Holy Spirit. Simon the sorcerer, from whom we get the term simony, that is, the selling of church offices, which became endemic in the Middle Ages. Dante, in his Divine Comedy, In the Inferno, has a special place in hell for clerics who sell offices for money. A miserable thing indeed. Now, Philip is on the way out. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So go down to the coast, the linking road from Jerusalem down to the coast at Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an, an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the queen of the Ethiopians. Now this man, had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So we have an Ethiopian court official. Ethiopia is in Africa, south of Egypt. The road to Gaza would then lead south into Egypt and then onward to Ethiopia. What was he doing in Jerusalem. Well, apparently he had been drawn to the God of, of Israel and he went to visit the temple, perhaps for one of the pilgrimage festivals, Pentecost. Maybe he was there at the time, at the time of the birth of the church. We don't know. But while he was there, he acquired a manuscript of the prophet Isaiah. Now, that would be a very expensive manuscript. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are two complete copies of Isaiah. The Isaiah Scrolls are about 29 feet long. It would take a lot of money to hire a scribe, acquire a copy of Isaiah, make a copy of it, and have it ready to sell. So this Ethiopian eunuch, an important court official of the queen of Ethiopia. He was a wealthy man, a respected man, and he's in his chariot on the way back home, and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. So Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. So He's not reading silently to himself, but he's vocalizing the words in a, in a whispered breath as he's reading, which was the custom 
in that day and for a long time, that you don't read silently, you verbalize what you're reading. You engage all of your senses, the sense of uh, sight, the sense of sound, and you encounter the text in a very rich way. So Philip heard the man reading, and he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And Philip did. So they had the scroll open, and they're going along the road, and the eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. This passage from Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. So the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. That's who he's speaking of. He's reading from the fourth of four suffering servant songs in the prophet Isaiah. Now, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, well, here's some water. Is there anything keeping me from being baptized? So he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch didn't see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip didn't just vanish into thin air. After the eunuch was baptized, his attendants, those with him, were hugging him and, and they were celebrating. And Philip had stood on it, you know, standing off to the side, watching it all. And just with a smile, thought, this is wonderful. And he turned and continued on his journey. And when the Ethiopian eunuch and the others turned to find him, he was gone. Philip then appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima on the coast, the artificial deep water port built by Herod the Great. Now we'll learn later that Philip settled down in Caesarea Maritima. He got married and he had children, daughters, who we'll learn later on in our story became preachers themselves. Well, meanwhile, what's happening with Saul of Tarsus? Well, he was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So those who scattered from Jerusalem after the persecution and killing of Stephen 
many of them went north on the Via Maris to Damascus. If you want to put up a roadblock and keep the word from getting outside of the Eastern Roman Empire, you put up a roadblock at Damascus, where the two international trade routes meet, the Via Maris and the King's Highway, and then go on into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So, he went to the high priest, Saul of Tarsus did, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, he would round them up and bring them back to Jerusalem. Now think about that for a moment. I mentioned that Saul was an adult student of the greatest rabbi of his century, Gamaliel. And you have to be a very bright person to get something like that, being mentored by the greatest rabbi of the century, Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus in southeastern Turkey of today. We've been there. We've visited there. Bright young man, brilliant young man. It's much like, I think I mentioned last time, it's much like a Caltech PhD doing postdoctoral work at Oxford or Cambridge University under a Nobel laureate. That was Saul of Tarsus. He was an up-and-comer. He was known for sure. And he went to the high priest. And the high priest delegated his own authority to Saul of Tarsus, issuing him letters to the synagogues in Damascus to act on behalf of the high priest and round up these people. So Saul had big connections, very high, within the religious leadership. And that's where he headed. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed and he was he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, this is the famous road to Damascus scene in the book of Acts. And we have talked about this in every single church, every single sermon forever. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the greatest of sinners who will become St. Paul the Apostle, the greatest of the saints. What a story. Indeed, from this point on, we're going to focus upon him as we make our way in the early church. The most famous painting of the road to Damascus scene is that of Caravaggio. And Caravaggio has Saul on the ground, having fallen off a horse. Notice, there's no horse in the story here, but we always think of Paul being knocked off his horse on the ground and blinded. We think of that because, well, Caravaggio painted it that way, and it's a very famous painting indeed. The voice said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he 
couldn't see anything. He was blind. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. It was such a brilliant flash of light for just a nanosecond that Saul's eyes could not adapt to that flash of light. And he was blinded in a kind of pyrocaustic surge of energy that hit his retina and blinded him. And he's in great pain, lying in a dark room, in a dark room, in pain, in anguish, his eyes throbbing, a migraine headache like you've never even imagined. And at the same time, recognizing what it is that he had done overseeing the murder of Stephen. Not an execution, a murder. And all these people Saul had rounded up, persecuting them. No one ever hated Christ more than Saul. And now, he's stunned. He's devastated. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Ananias said, uh, excuse me, Lord, time out, time out. I, I've heard many reports about this guy and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Are, are you sure about this, Lord? But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry out my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias said, all right. And he went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. His eyes had been physically damaged by that flash of light, and something like a film or, or, or fish scales fell from his eyes. He got up, he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now think of this story, Saul on the road to Damascus. As I said, no one ever hated Christ more than Saul of Tarsus. He was 
absolutely convinced that he was right in doing so. Just like the high priest and the religious leaders during Holy Week, they saw Jesus as a threat to the very survival of Israel and the temple worship. He had to be stopped. They crucified him. But then the message spread. Saul took it on himself to lead the persecution. And now, how blind was he? What, a, what irony that on the road to Damascus, Saul, who saw the threat clearly, is blinded because he's been blind all along. And now that he receives his sight, he truly can see, not just physically, but he can understand, comprehend, and fully embrace the message of Jesus Christ and of Peter and James and John and the others. What will he do with all of this? I can only imagine Saul of Tarsus, his sight restored, weeping bitterly at what he had done. He will tell us later, I was the greatest of sinners. And he was. That's not hyperbole. He was the greatest of sinners. And yet, God had groomed him from the very start to be the Apostle Paul. Think of that. All the education that Saul had attained, all the knowledge that Saul had attained, the languages, the rhetorical skill, all of it was directed toward this very moment. And in a flash of light, everything changed for Saul. What will he do with it? Keep me in your prayers, please. I'll keep you in mind. Bye-bye now.